going to be continuing our sermon series. Uh, we've been preaching out of the epistle of Philippians. And the title of our sermon series is Christ Our Joy. Christ, can everyone say Christ Our Joy? Christ Our Joy. And, and uh, Pastor Susie preached the first two. I'm going to preach the third one today titled Rejoice in Our Sanctification. Rejoice in Our Sanctification. Uh, Jacob, he mentioned, he talked about sanctification a little bit. I was like, go ahead, preach my sermon. Go ahead. Keep, keep, keep going. <laughs> but, uh, okay, I love the oneness. I love the unity. So, I'm going to be preaching. Uh, uh, we're going to show a little outline um, of this eight-part series. And today, I'm going to be hitting the third one. Rejoice in our sanctification. Um, as Jacob mentioned... Our house churches, which are our um, you know, small groups, many of you guys are in it. We have a, just a few weeks left. We've been studying Matthew chapter 24 and 25, titled The Olivet Discourse. It's one of Jesus' last sermons he gave. And we're studying this chapter, and it has everything to do with the end times. It's what Jesus has to say about the end times. And... A, a, a huge question that we're faced with week in and week out as we end our Bible studies is, how do we prepare? How do we prepare for the end times? How can we be ready? What does that look like? Like, whether it's tomorrow or our generation or years down the line, regardless of when it is, how can we prepare? We're we're. we're answering that question again and again. And why I bring this up is, it's cool that we're doing this sermon series in, from Philippians. You know why? Because this letter of Philippians, it has everything to do with what it looks like to prepare for the end times. We've been learning that at closer and closer, it gets to when Jesus returns. We learn from the Bible that it's going to get harder and harder. It's going to get darker and darker. It's, there's going to be a lot of suffering. Okay, That's what we've been learning. How do we prepare for that? And the letter of Philippians, the reason why it's so important to study, and part of why we're studying this is because, guess what? Paul himself, who is writing this epistle, he's actually writing this letter, guess what? With the end times in mind. Did you know that? How do I know that? Pastor Susie preached the past two weeks on chapter 1. On chapter 1, verse 6, it says, we love this verse, right? He will finish what he started. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It says, until the day of Christ, meaning until he returns. Uh, chapter 1, verse 10, Paul encourages the church to be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Again, a reference to the end times. And we'll see in chapter 2 today, a couple of references to the end times as well. How, is, how does this letter, what does this letter have anything to do with the end times? Well, we have to understand the backdrop of this letter. When the backdrop of life in our lives, when the backdrop of our lives is marked by suffering, and darkness, trial, and tribulation, you can't help but think about the end times, actually. You know, for many of us, probably, who grew up 
kind of westernized and, and really privileged, it's actually hard for us naturally to think about the end times. But did you know that countries where the church is actually facing real persecution, I guarantee you they think a lot more about the end times than we do. Right? The backdrop of persecution and darkness, and that is the backdrop of the book of Philippians. It's happening during a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. So, the truths in this letter will be crucial for learning and living out in preparation for trials and tribulations. Whether we're going through trials and tribulations now, and whether we're going through trials and tribulations, we will in the future, but guaranteed it will happen closer and closer to the end times. So with that said, Philippians chapter 2, let's turn there. Verse 1 through, seven, 1 through 18. I'm going to be reading 1 through 18. If you could turn there, if you have it on your phones or your Bibles. And what I like to do when I preach, let's all stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's all stand for the reading of God's Word. So Apostle Paul, he says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's envisioning the end times, by the way. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, as in they're actually doing this already, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, everyone say, work out, your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things, say all things, without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, there it is, so that in the day of Christ, the end times again, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. 
Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. Amen. What a rich passage, right? Let's remember what's going on here as this letter was written. Pastor Susie probably mentioned this. Paul, as he's writing this, he's not writing this with a cup of coffee in a nice cafe in an Instagram-worthy environment. He's writing this in prison. He's getting tortured. This is right after he's been whipped on his back many times for doing what? What did he go to prison for? It's in the book of Acts. He casted out a demon out of a, out of a girl. And then he started to cause a ruckus started sharing the gospel, started preaching things that were not according to the culture, the Roman culture at the time. So he got arrested, and he's getting beaten. Is Paul suffering? Yeah, he is suffering. So with this backdrop, Paul is saying this essentially, pretty much from verse 1 through 11, Paul is saying this, Join with me, brothers and sisters, in union with Christ. Join with me in pursuing Christ-likeness. Let me say that again. Paul, after he's getting all these whips on his back, he's saying, Church, join with me in pursuing Christ-likeness. In the midst of suffering, his focus is growing in a Christ-like attitude. That's crazy. The first section of this chapter, he's basically saying, come on, church, let's be like Christ. Let's be humble. Let's be more selfless. Let's consider others better than ourselves. He's saying all these things. Let's become a servant. Let's become like Christ. Wow. That's amazing. Why is that amazing? I don't know about you, but the natural direction of where my mind and my heart goes when I'm suffering, when I'm going through trials in my life, it's actually not thinking about becoming more Christ-like. When the going gets tough, I like to focus on myself and how I could be delivered from my suffering. I pray for deliverance from my suffering. It's just natural for us to feel that way, isn't it? I find it extraordinary, actually, that Paul focuses on heart issues in the midst of persecution and suffering. How many of, how many of us really think to ourselves when we're going through hard times? How many of us really think to ourselves, I want to be more like Christ? Do we pray, Christ through this, make me more like you. Or do we pray, Christ, deliver me. Get me out of here. I'm more the latter. I'm more the latter. We want more of a escapism Christianity, don't we? Escapism Christianity. In a sense, we want to be raptured out of our trials and tribulations. We don't want to go through tribulation and trials. We just want to be raptured from it. There are certain theologies that form around this idea, by the way. But it's not Paul's theology. 
It's a supernatural thing. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's the working of the Holy Spirit that we think to ourselves, I want to be others-oriented when I'm going through a hard time in my life. That's not natural. That's supernatural. That's God working in us. That's the gospel's impact in my life, in our lives. It's not waiting for the suffering to go away in hopes that he will deliver us. Get this. This is what Paul's trying to say. When suffering and trials happen, it's not that we should just want deliverance from these things, but it's that we, we should desire Christ-likeness through that suffering. That we should desire Christ-likeness through the fire. That's what he's trying to say here. Brothers and sisters, we don't get a pat on our back for serving and being selfless, selfless when it's easy. When everything's going our way, when life is okay, we don't get a pat on our back when we're being selfless. Deep gospel transformation happens when we are others-oriented during trials and tribulations. The Bible says that in the end times, before Jesus returns, people will be lovers of themselves. That's going to increase more and more. Narcissism, the need for control, manipulating others, a life of selfishness, that's going to increase more and more as suffering increases. That's why Paul is preaching this and teaching the church in the midst of persecution. Let me offer you a different paradigm of how to get through life. So from the front end, what is Paul's main charge to the church I'm just going to share the main point of this sermon from the beginning. It's this. Pursue Christ-likeness. I said it already. Paul is saying, grow with me in pursuing Christ-likeness. He says, be like Christ by working out your salvation in fear and trembling. And then lastly, do it with an attitude of rejoicing. Everybody say rejoicing. This is going to be a hard sermon, guys. This is going to be a hard sermon. Rejoice in our sanctification. You know, one thing I wondered was, in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says this. He says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you remember that? Meaning, God's going to finish what He started in you. The good work of sanctification you becoming more like Christ, God is doing it in you. He's going to do it. Amen. We love that. You know, when we're, when we're in revival service and someone declares that verse, we're like, amen, amen, come on. Yeah? But then, chapter 2, he says something that seems contradictory. He says, you, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, as in, you do it. You work it out. When revival service, I'm like on the mic, come on, yeah, work out your salvation. Nobody's going to be like, amen, yeah. We like the God, you do it. You see, this is not mutually exclusive, to be clear. Paul knows what he's talking about. It's both of these things. God works in us while we work it out. It's both. And by the way, 
just to clear some confusion. When the Bible says here, work out your salvation, it doesn't mean work for your salvation. Just to be clear. It doesn't say do more. Check off the religious checklist more and more so that you can be justified. Justified means being in right standing with God. Paul's not saying work for your salvation. What Paul is saying here, hey, give effort, take action to be more like Christ. That's what he's saying here. Work it out. I think I shared this analogy before, but, you know, I'm not going to pray, Lord, please, I plead with you, give me a six-pack. And by faith, I just take faith right now and I declare that I will have a six-pack. You're going to do it, Lord, because nothing is impossible for you. I'm not going to look at my stomach every morning and hope that it's there. God will help me. Oh, He will help me. But how will He bless me? He will bless me with a gym membership. And I have to work it out. Who said amen? (laughs) Babe, did you say amen? (laughs) Uh, Chris Valentin, he said this quote. He says, I like this quote a lot. He says, God the Father. God is the artist, right? And what is it? (laughs) God is the artist. Jesus is the model. And then you and I are the painting, God is making us more and more like Christ. He is doing it, okay? He is doing it. But we have to differentiate between root and fruit. Everyone say root and fruit. When you think about about a tree, you see, the root of the tree, right? It's really important to produce the fruit on the trees, right? You see, the root is we are saved by grace and grace alone. That's the root. And the fruit that grows from that, may the joy of the Lord abound in that children's room, (laughs) right? The fruit that grows from that, right? It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's Christ-likeness. Okay, we got to understand that. Jesus and the gospel is not only the model to imitate, but the source of empowerment and the source of motivation. Right, The Christians, you and I, we work out, the Lord works in. Our responsibility and God's sovereign enablement. Right, I think you guys get it. You guys are with me. I want to share this illustration by Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Pastor Susie quoted him last week. Prince of Preachers. Here we go. I'm going to read it. I have heard it said that the good sculptor Whenever he sees a suitable block of marble, firmly believes that there is a statue concealed within it. His business is to take away the superfluous material and so unveil the thing of beauty. Believer, you are that block of marble. You have been quarried by divine grace. And set apart for the master's service. But we cannot see the image of Christ in you yet as we could wish. True, there are small traces of it. Some dim outlines of what it is to be. It is for you, brothers and sisters. With the chisel and the mallet. With constant endeavor and holy dependence on God. To work out that image of Christ in yourself. 
till you shall be discovered to be by all men like unto your Lord and Master. God has sketched the image of His Son in you. In the as yet but slightly carved marble, He has fairly outlined it. And you have but to go on chipping away these sins, infirmities, corruptions, till the fair likeness of the incarnate God shall be seen by all. That's beautiful. God has corrid you. He has delivered you to be saved. You are that block of marble. And what God sees, He sees the statue in the marble. And we are to partake with Him. The statue is Christ, to look like Christ. So, Paul says, let's pursue Christ-likeness. In the specific way, the specific way that Paul actually shares in this passage is through service. Everyone say service. Okay. What it looks like to live out Paul's charge to be Christ-like is through selfless service. Even in the midst of tribulation. Even in the midst of suffering. Service. Whether it's service in the church, service in your marriage, service you know, in your friendship, service in your workplace, being a servant is the pursuit here. That's the action here of what it looks like to be Christ-like. But... Sometimes we feel burnt out, don't we, at times? Sometimes we feel burnt out and unmotivated to serve with a joyful heart. Whether this is at church or at work or at home or wherever, when we feel burnt out, we should see that as a warning light that comes on the dashboard of our cars. It's a warning light when we feel burnt out in serving. We need to be reminded of the purpose of serving. And and this is really important. The purpose of serving. And it's this. The purpose of service is not necessarily only for the outcome. But embracing the process. Christ is in the process. Christ is in the process. Sometimes, what I'm saying is this. Sometimes, we can... Pursue Christ-likeness, but not pursue Christ. We can strive and we can go after wanting to be like Christ, but not spend any time with Him. Like I could emulate my game to be like Michael Jordan, but not know anything about Him. It's very possible in Christianity. Very possible. When we serve, we don't want to just rejoice because it makes us a better person when we serve. And when we serve, we don't want to rejoice because of the results that we see after we serve. Someone gets blessed or whatnot. I'm not saying we shouldn't rejoice. Yeah, we should rejoice, right? But Paul's charge is this. When we serve, we rejoice because in the process, we got to know Christ more. Paul warns us against service without Christ. We will burn out. We will burn out. Here's a conviction I had 
Maybe at times we elevate the desire for Christ-likeness more than knowing Christ. Mm. For me, I failed at this many times. You know, I've been in ministry for around a decade now. Man, I want the fruit, guys. <laughs> I want the result. I want my grind to be worth something. I want my reward to be, I don't know, sometimes it's more people at church. Sometimes everybody being saved. Sometimes it's revival, whatever that looks like. I want the fruit from service. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But there's so many life, so so many times in my life where I expend so much energy serving, but I go home feeling so empty on the inside. And if you were to ask me the question, have I gained Christ? Did I do it with Christ? Did I know His heart more? For the person I served? The honest answer is no. Honest answer is no. And I'm back to the place where I'm humbled again. Where first things have to become first again. In the service. In the sanctification. Do not miss Christ. Do not miss Christ. Our becoming like Christ happens when we learn to serve with Christ. Our becoming like Christ happens when we learn to serve with Christ. Man, when I think about Paul, he's writing this letter. You know what else he's doing in prison? He's rejoicing. He's singing songs. He's praising God. He has authentic joy. This fruit of the Spirit joy. He has this in the midst of persecution. Do you know why? Because he sees that his suffering, his trial, is so pregnant with purpose. He not only just wants deliverance from prison and the fruitfulness of the churches, but he is doing this with Christ as he's going through this. He's tapping into this joy. Man, I want us to tap into that joy. We need that in this life. So Paul is not only encouraging the church to become Christ-like through serving, but this is the harder part. You ready for this? It's serving with the right attitude. Serving with the right attitude. He says in verse 14, Do all things without grumbling and disputing. And before you check out, please... Join with me in conviction here, all right? Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Grumbling is a secret displeasure in the heart that leads to criticism. A secret displeasure in the heart that leads to criticism. Grumbling or complaining is the most tempting thing to do when we don't get our way, isn't it? Come on, let's be honest, y'all. Thank you, Pastor Susie. <laughs> Grumbling and complaining is the easiest thing to do. It's the most tempting thing to do when we don't get our way or if we're going through suffering or if we don't understand why we're going through what we're going through. It's the natural thing to do. What's the title of this sermon 
series is Christ our joy. Talking about rejoicing. Why does Paul touch on these two specific character traits and actions? Grumbling and disputing. Because grumbling and disputing is the very opposite of rejoicing and thankfulness. He's saying this on purpose. Consider this, guys. Complaining and grumbling, it denies God's sovereignty. It disrupts unity. It discredits our testimony. And it desensitizes our hearts to the promptings of God. I'll say that one more time. Complaining and grumbling, it denies God's sovereignty. It disrupts unity. It discredits our testimony and desensitizes our hearts to the promptings of God. You see, when we grumble and complain, we automatically, what are we doing? We're dismissing even the possibility that God has ordained this for a purpose. We're dismissing the possibility that God may be sanctifying us. It's kind of like, uh, I'd say grumbling and complaining, it's kind of like uh, smoking cigarettes, right? Some of you guys don't know what I'm talking about. Because smoking cigarettes, it gives you that temporary satisfaction. Oh, that felt good. That temporary relief. But in the long run, it'll jack up your lungs. In the same way, grumbling and disputing, it feels good at the moment, doesn't it? It feels really good. Temporary relief. But in the long run, it won't jack up our lungs, it'll jack up our hearts. It will really jack up our hearts. Who grumbled in the Bible? The Israelites grumbled in the Bible. You know Paul, when he's saying this, he's thinking about the Israelites. He's talking about be people set apart. It says right there in Scripture, like, don't be like the crooked and perverse generation. No, that's in Deuteronomy 32.5. It says, they have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. They, they were literally delivered from slavery. They were delivered with the most, in the most miraculous way, the splitting of the Red Sea. And they forgot about the extravagant deliverance, and they were entitled to what? They felt entitled to the promised land. Their, their minds and attitudes were, thank you for delivering me. Now, Lord, if I'm not in the promised land now, what is this? I didn't sign up for this. Grumbling and complaining comes out of the hearts of the Israelites. And yeah, the desert wasn't the most pleasant place to be. The wilderness was not the most pleasant place to be. But God had a purpose in that wilderness season, didn't he? What was that purpose of that process? Knowing God. Intimacy. Relationship. Sometimes I ask God, God, but why not relationship in the promised land? <laughs> Why not intimacy and relationship in the promised land? I believe that is because God, He knows our frame. He knows that when things are going well, we won't turn to Him and cling to Him. Right? He's teaching us like He taught Paul, like He's trying to teach the church of Philadelphia, Philippia, Philippi. <laughs> Our church name in Philadelphia, I'm confused. And us here, He's trying to train us 
to learn how to rejoice and be set apart in this perverse and crooked generation here. Grumbling, and it says disputing. Disputing is, in here, a questioning mind and suggests an arrogant attitude by those who assume they're always right. I know better than everybody else. I know better than God. It leads to cynicism. Bad for the heart. (laughs) Cynicism. If we want to cultivate a heart of humility and rejoicing, and Christ-likeness, we first need to aggressively work on controlling our tongue and regulate, regulating our thoughts. We need to take captive, as the Bible says, the thoughts of our minds and our hearts that do not align with the will of God. That in and of itself is a supernatural endeavor. I will testify because not always are my thoughts, you know, and, and my heart's meditations, not always is it really trusting God. Not always do I see God's purpose. Not always do I see the, the you know, all the suffering moments pregnant with purpose. Not, only, not always do I have that perspective. It's got to be the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Um. We're going to get there later in the sermon series, but I just want to read this verse from Philippians chapter 4, verse, one, verse 11 through 13. And Paul got it. Paul got it. And this is what I pray for all of us. It says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In whatever situation, content. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And there's that famous verse, Steph Curry's favorite verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We love that verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But the context of that verse is what I just preached on here. What does it look like to embrace the process of suffering and learning how to rejoice and be selfless within those times? That's the strength that God's trying to give. That's the strength that God's trying to give. So here's my main point. Our becoming like Christ happens when we learn to serve with Christ without grumbling and disputing. That's what the scriptures are saying here from Paul. And I'll close with this. This sermon series is titled, Christ Our Joy. Christ Our Joy. Now I was thinking about it. Joy is only joy whenever there's resistance. And I can be happy Happiness goes and comes and you know goes. But joy is only joy whenever there's resistance. When I'm going through a hard time, and if you're going through a hard time right now, any kind of suffering, any kind of trial, any kind of tribulation, the question that I would like to propose is, 
Is Christ worth it? Is Christ worth it? There will come a day, brothers and sisters, when Jesus returns. There will come a day when there will be no more resistance. There will be no more suffering, trial, and tribulation. And it will be easy to rejoice then. But what do you think it would how do you think God's heart would be impacted when we choose to rejoice and be selfless when there is resistance? On this side of eternity, before Jesus returns, this is the only opportunity, church, that we have to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Love matters much. When love is chosen, even though there's difficulty and resistance. And God sees that here. God sees that. You know, whether you're going through a trial and tribulation now, and whether we will in the future, and we will, might I suggest with all sensitivity that maybe you can come out with such a great reward. Christ-likeness being secondary, but intimacy with Christ being primary. Is that the desire of your heart? Do you want to know Him more? Do you want to know Him more? That's the main question here.